So look, folks, if you've been listening to this show since the beginning of this show, you know that we always talk about the Oscars. I mean, every year it, it is a cultural constant on this show because I, I reminisce about the old Oscars. I, I, I am excited. I'm always excited at the pageantry of the Oscars. Uh, in fact, we just did a bonus episode about the Oscars for full Marin subscribers. I talked with Brendan about the history of the Academy Awards, and we went through some of the best picture winners that are still very important to us. Forrest Gump, Schindler's List, Unforgiven, The Silence of the Lambs, and Dances with Wolves. This was extremely tough for me between two movies. Oh, boy. You know, I got to go with Unforgiven. That was my, I was between that and silence and exactly. I picked silence. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. It was really hard, but I had to really like, you know, think if, if both of these were on at the same time and I could only watch one, which would it I, be? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I will watch the Unforgiven anytime I come upon it and I'll, and I'll watch it on purpose uh, at least once a year because again, Hollywood uh, studying film, you know, Westerns in general. Uh, it, it's like one of the most satisfying movies ever made. That yeah, movie. well, and very, very rewarding from that perspective of a de as a deconstruction sure. of the tradition. Yeah, exactly. Smart movie. But Silence, I, I, I like that movie. I love it. But I, You know, I noticed too is that I think I'm a bit of a sucker for like um, – the performances within movies that have hooks, right? Like I will go back to that movie over and over again because I just want to see what Hopkins did. I want to see what Foster did. And what it's about not, Levine? Yes, uh, Ted Levine, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I, it, it was weird because I remember having a conversation with some woman who thought that, you know, Anthony Hopkins was so interesting in that movie. And I'm like, what about Ted Levine? And she's like, oh, gross. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> But I, I mean, I will say, I think I'm somewhat like there's there's part of me that I'm buttressing up against the fact that like for a long time, I like friends of mine and I would like do the Buffalo sure. Bill voice sure. to each other. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and I start to wonder, am I like, am I enjoying this for the wrong reason? Like, do I just like it because I want to be able to go, oh, she a great big fat person <laughs> to somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just there there were moments in his performance that were truly uh, what they would call cringe now, but it, it, in in retrospect, you know, showed a, a profound disturbing vulnerability. Like I really think he stepped on the wire. Oh, he yeah. was out on the wire with that performance. Whereas you know, as interesting yes. as Anthony Hopkins was, you know, he was an alpha monster. Whereas you know, Ted is this strange. Yes you know, amorphous, sexually, you know, fucked up person, you know, trying to complete himself in some weird way. Yeah. To me, I was like, wow. And Jodie Foster is genius. Uh, you know, and I love that movie, but I, I, I have Amazing. to be honest. I mean, I'll, I watch The Unforgiven over and over again if just that watch, you know, Clint Eastwood walk into that bar and shoot that guy. Mm -hmm. hey, he didn't do anything. And dumb little, what's his name? Oh, Saul Rubinek. Yes, yeah, Saul Rubinek. You know, like, uh, I'm, I'm shot. I'm shot. Didn't you see that guy like on the bench outside your hotel or something? Yeah, he wasn't very nice. <laughs> he said, I'm a big fan. He's like, nah, all right. Sorry. <laughs>
<laughs> if you want to hear us go through several decades of Best Picture winners back to the 60s and get into the dubious origins of the Oscars as well, listen to the rest of that episode on the Full Marin, which you can subscribe to by clicking on the link in the episode description. But right now, we'll get you prepped for the Oscars this Sunday with this compilation of talks I had with this year's Oscar nominees. You can go back and listen to the full episodes with these 12 nominees whenever you want. But we figured, why not put the conversations about their nominated work all in one place? So first, we'll hear clips from my interviews with Michelle Yeoh, the Daniels, Daniel Kwan, and Daniel Scheinert about everything, everywhere, all at once. Michelle is nominated for Best Actress, and the Daniels are nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. Yeah. It was doing Crazy Rich Asians yeah. when I was doing the, the press and things like this set, and I was sent this script. Yeah. And I, I read it, and, you know, I've been in the business long enough yeah. to go, holy freaking hell, yeah. this could be... It's it's so wacky. It's so out there. You know how we always say, I want something that's original. Come on. Totally right? original and also plays to all your strengths, respects where you're at in your career now, gives you an opportunity to do uh, a, a dramatic role with some depth and, and sort of addresses the idea of you're, you're not an Asian, you're uh, an actor, a woman uh, in with a specific mm -hmm. situation that is not uncommon to many women of all kinds. And yet there's this whole other... Uh, element to it, and you have the skill set to do it. Oh, thank you, thank you for putting it all together. It right? is, yes. And you, you know, your my first instinct was like these two Daniels. Please let them be, you know, geniuses and not. And they are geniuses. They are. They are so attuned to the balance of chaos. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like respite and all this. And it's like, how do you make it? It's like, it's okay to laugh. It's yeah. okay to laugh at oh, yourself yeah. Yeah. and how absurd this whole, it's, it, our world is chaotic. Yes. You know, if you look at it, yes. And yes, we can't communicate with each other. It's called what? Generational trauma. Sure. Right? Yeah. And all the young people are like, their, their life, everything is in their face. Yeah. With a flick of the, because in the past, the, the last generation didn't really get to travel. They focused on how do we make a better life yeah. so that you have a better life, right. right? But now with the flick of the finger, they're in Asia, they're in Bali, they're in, you know, they can go, they travel, their yeah. minds are being exposed to so many things. So okay. they always feel that, why are you so critical of me? You always tell me, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. You tell me I'm, I'm wrong. It's almost like, I'm just not good enough for you, right? Yeah. I, I, I'm just like useless. So they get in their heads. Whereas the the parents, especially the immigrant parents, is like there is like a duality. Do they are they American or are they Asian? Mm. Uh, how do and why do they have to choose? Yeah, they they yeah. are Asian American, sure. right? They should right know their yeah. culture. They don't have to be ashamed of yeah. it. But in the past, it was like fit in. Just fit in, yeah, so that people don't think you're weird, you know. Right. So it always that that you got to pass somehow. Yeah, that that internal conflict that they yes. have, and then they also have a problem of communication mm. with their parents. Mm. It's like in Asia, parents don't communicate how they don't know how to say, "Well, I love you. I think you're great," or I think they'll be like, "You're getting fat. You right? Know? You need to cut your hair." You it sounds to... terrible. Yeah, and but their, their their motivation is, I just want you to be better because right. I know you can. Right. Right. Yes. But it's just that it doesn't come out like that. Yes. Mom, like yes. I, I'm 
60. When I go home, my mom will lay out my clothes for me. And I'm like, uh, I think I can dress myself at this point. And she'll say, like, why didn't you comb your hair? I'm like, oh, boy. Wow. Still, <laughs> huh? Still. And, and also what you're saying about the, the younger generation is that that is the point of view of the two Daniels, right? Yes. So they are able to have a freedom of mind in terms of imagination that is thoroughly modern and, and, and without restriction. Right. And also they have very strong mothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? So they got Daniel it. Daniel Kwan's yeah. mother is like powerful. And, yeah. and they're surrounded by their, their wives, their girlfriends. You know, they, they are independent working women yeah. who are very successful with what they do. So, yeah. you know, it's like they see this and they're, they're going like, we have to pay respect. And it's... I think if they did, when they first started, yes, they wrote the, the I, I tease them, I say, you wrote the generic action film, right? Yeah. You wrote it for a guy. Yeah. Which uh -huh. is the normal thing to right. do. Right. That's why, you know, normally you don't re get a script where it's already written for a woman. Right. It's already like that. Did they write it for a guy? The, at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Then they threw it away. So they've been working on this for like, Five years, I want oh, to say. Oh, that's crazy. So when they finally, you know, they said, you know what? We're just going to like sit down, throw away, and then put in everything that, you know, when you're when you are young. Yeah. And it's like, this is the time when you go for it. And sure. you're hungry. Yeah. And everything that people say you can't do, yeah. you shouldn't do. Right. And you go, why not? Yeah. And let's find a platform. And they were so smart with the multiverse. Yeah. It's like a science fiction. Anything goes, right? Right. I can let my mind go sure, to a place exactly. and which they did. It's crazy. With the and you when you're reading it, you're like, hot dog fingers. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. How's okay. that gonna all right? <laughs> it, it it's all there. Yeah. You know, the body parts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the butt plugs. Yeah. They're all there. Yeah. Yeah, but then you, as you read all this. You know, it's like, it's very easy to see superficially. Yes, it's wacky. It's like really weird. Yeah. But the core of it that resonates, you know, the, the heart that's yeah. beating is family. Yes. It's never giving up on family and actually turning around and say, whatever you are, however you are, it's enough. Yeah. And I will, whatever universe, I will always want to be with you right and yeah, i think beautiful. that was what it reached out to people sort of an unconditional love of yes. family if it's possible yeah. which it, it's hard it's, nothing is easy yeah does your mother factor into everything everywhere all at once i mean uh, completely yeah this <laughs> yeah. Uh, do, do we do we want to get into it <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but i mean it just seems that that like that relate that dynamic oh totally yeah we we realized while writing it that like uh the character of jobu the kind of villain um, is like uh, the character version of all of our movies, yeah. you know, and that the, the the Evelyn is our parents. Yeah. And it's just like, this is this weird, unhinged thing. And then the parent is like, what? Why? What is Why wrong is with you? What are like you this? doing? Yeah. You know, like yeah. she is the, the weird music video. She's, yeah. the, she's the part of, she's an archetype of you guys. Exactly. Uh, especially yeah. our work, which yeah, our, the work, know, right. work tends to be our weirdest version of ourself that we're like, this, yeah. is, right. this is in me, you know. Yeah, but it's like every parent's nightmare to to see their kid go out into the world and, and represent things until they yeah, And just represent something that they, they did not think was a part of them. So, yeah. Like, you know, my dad actually showed, turned out for what, to his coworkers and they they were like, are you embarrassed? Are you, <laughs> you know, and like, so grappling with those ideas, the, the movie is a movie yeah. about our mm -hmm. parents in, in some small ways, learning to expand their minds to be able to include all of the messy, unexpected parts of us. And, and about the kid yeah. learning to give the parents some space and grace and, yeah. and being like, so this is, not this is easy. The, but know? this is the story. 
Mm. Like, you know, what you start with with this movie is it, there is a story there. Mm. And it's yeah. pretty basic about, you know, parents and kids and about the strain that parents' relationships go through, male and female, you, yeah. you know, roles, and then the immigrant experience. Like, you know, you could... If you pitched a movie without any of what you guys do, they'd be like, well, that's a, that sounds like an interesting emotional movie. Oh, totally. Thank you. Yeah, Maybe people, we'll do that on the next one. <laughs> I mean, people ask us, like, how did you pitch everything everywhere? And we're like, this was pretty easy. Yeah. You know, because we were like, we're like, hey, we're the farting corpse guys. This right. one's about um, a uh, mom going on an action adventure story and learning to love her family they're like oh my god that sounds marketable yeah, like, right. thank god you you, you got over the yeah, fart no more stuff. farting weirdness and then we're like oh just wait you know? yeah yeah like, it, we, this time it just takes a little longer and then things go in butts you know yeah because I, I think we realized the film was going to be about just generation gaps in general yeah um every generation has to deal with it but what makes this generation gap between millennials and boomers so unique and yeah within the context of history is the fact that uh Millennials are the first uh, generation to grow up on the internet. Yeah. And for to have parents not understand what it was like to be able to just accidentally fall into all sorts of awful, terrible things when you're 10 years old. Yeah. Um, and, and the effect that might have on you growing up. Um, that is a very bizarre uh, generation gap. And we realized the multiverse was a really good place for us to explore that. Uh-huh. Um, well, yeah. also what's interesting, too, and I'm just thinking about this now because I had a conversation with my producer yesterday just about – that that generation is now becoming adverse to emotions. Mm. Yeah, that that you know when they use words like cringe or awkward. Oh yeah. That you know it's really in reaction to vulnerability. Yeah. So there's a, a, a guardedness that's happening around engaging in, in true emotional vulnerability. Yes. That's a little disconcerting. Totally. And I think that there is something to that in the movie that what you come around to is 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 acceptance and 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 real vulnerability on both parts right totally um, yeah i reflecting on the cringe thing is is interesting because when you live your life online in yeah. in, in in social circles for the most part yeah uh, especially ones that are driven by algorithms there is no grace for any mistakes so that is, I, I think that is why people are so guarded, and that's why people like when you when you watch someone else make a mistake on online, you feel their pain. You feel, and you realize I never want that to happen to me. And so suddenly you have a whole generation of people who are fearful of looking like they made a mistake, or fearful of being the cringe person online. It's like it's, it's a problem. It's, a, it's how are they going to exist in relationship exactly. without how are they going to identify, you know, uh, uh, you know, evolving vulnerability. How do you yeah. grow yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. as a person if you if you're just uh, you're you're transferring the possibility of your own mistakes onto yes. somebody it actually happens to, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. live in fear of that, yeah. how do you develop? Uh, you have to listen to your podcast, WTF. Oh, just the- yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do think, like on the other side, like the you know the internet has started to celebrate mental health and vulnerability A bit, but in these true. ways that are like, oh, cool, like like. I sometimes wonder if, like, yeah, millennials are going to be the jaded ones, but the kids are actually going to be like mm. vulnerable as hell. And yeah. like, they, just thinking about like with our movie, I, you know, we never expected the thing that would go viral with kids would be selfies of them crying. Yeah. But like on TikTok, people would post yeah. like 
selfies of like how much they cried at our movie and that was the thing that they'd share oh and i was like whoa i thought they'd be t- talking about you that, know yeah that was the thing that sold hands. tickets because then someone would be like oh They'd why like, are, why is everyone crying at this movie i gotta go watch this it movie gives too. them permission to have the emotions that they're usually ashamed of i guess yeah, maybe really cool but it was honestly. i thought it was beautiful <laughs> i was like oh my god I, that's so cool i thought we, we had to sneak the the right the emotion in there but the emotion became the thing the, the selling point well that's interesting because it's not like you know no one's at risk Mm. Like mm. if somebody shares it, like this thing made me do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and yeah, then yeah. everyone's sort of like, well, I kind of want to do that if it's safe to do it. Yeah, totally. Right. Wild. Yeah. It, but if you didn't cry, that's fine too. Yeah. <laughs> some, people, some people, you know. I cry at everything. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know why that happens, but it, it's, I don't know if that's it's great. Like, I was always kind of like that though. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't yeah. take much. It doesn't, I love that. You can hear those full talks on episodes 1411 and 1412. Next, we've got the nominated cast members from The Whale. Brendan Fraser is nominated for Best Actor, and Hong Chow is nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Here we go. In talking to these uh, individuals, outside of um, abusive adults, is there usually a a history of other trauma? Yes. I mean, I didn't get into those areas that they were uncomfortable with, but I think we can all attest that there are overlaps in those kinds of issues. Trauma reaction. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know how to answer that one, but I think that they're very interrelated. Yeah, because like it's interesting in the movie that uh, you know the, the the story unfolds in the in the second or the the third the uh, last third of the movie. You know, pieces fall into place to that sort of define some of your character's emotional and behavior and. and, and mm-hmm. Because it was, it's a very. I don't want to spoil the movie for anybody, but you know, it, it it's a very specific reaction to somebody dying yeah. in a certain way. Yeah. But but it seems like the issues were there previous. Yeah, right. I agree. Yeah. And you you don't know what happens after whatever happens at the end of this movie, no, man. It's not important. It's not important. Uh, and and there I don't even know if you would say it's hopeful. But it, it does release you. It does. It does. For all the screenings I've attended with yeah. a question answer period afterwards, I mean, it's almost like a trope in Hollywood. Like, oh my God, there were tears in everyone's yeah, eyes, sure. blah, blah, blah. But seriously, people stay rooted to the spot, even if the credits have rolled. Oh, yeah. Some clap, some sob and hold each other. I know the first time I saw this movie, and I'm in it, I, I, was, I, I had to seriously... Um, move the chess pieces around on the board and, yeah. and then throw the board out and go, I got to think about this some more. I definitely had to, I had a feeling of, I just, I felt like you really need to gather yourself after this. And for reasons you might not even know why, and maybe it's not that important. Oh, for sure. It, it is, if I, I was just saying, if I, you know, if I do come out to an audience who has seen it, the first thing I, you know, I would joke about it. It's like, is everybody okay? And they yeah. go, ha, ha, ha. But, you know, seriously, some people are triggered by what goes on. And, and you know, it's an emotional body blow for, for many people. But it's also a catharsis that I think is, I don't know, I, I haven't seen it in cinema yeah. for a long time. And I'm, I'm scr- I mean, help me out here. I'm scratching my head like, what, Steel Magnolias? When did people really, for whatever be, reasons, be, have that become collective? Yeah. Well, I mean, this one's so complicated because, you know, it's not like just someone, you know, like uh, dying of cancer. Correct. It's not terms of endearment. You know, it's, 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 it's an aggravated and, you know, painful process of, of, 
of self annihilation and, yeah. and 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 grief. I mean, there there seems to be a lot of grief in the air, generally speaking, right now. Yeah. You know, after COVID and yeah. after you know whatever we went through as a country and a world and what we are going through, you know, the world is dying. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no <laughs> there's no way to to after a certain point. Uh, avoid that reality. So I think grief, in and of itself, whether you know, however it's it's grounded in whatever character or situation, you know, is speaking to the human spirit right now, right? right? So I, I mean, when you say triggered, like because like me, you know, I would be somebody who is you know severely triggered by by food issues, but but that's not that that is not what what got me emotionally. You know, what got me emotionally was was just that need uh, for redemption. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and also the fact that um, he, out of his shame, thought that he deserved what was happening to him. And I think that people struggle with their secrets and with their, you know, their un, unprocessed grief and with their their own shame about how they behaved— Every day. So the mm-hmm. spectrum of triggers, you know, is is something. So, you know, it's hard to know coming out of that what would cause anybody, you know, to react to it. But it is a human, existentially true um, reaction. Speaking of existentialism, yeah. we all lived under that clearly with COVID. Yeah. Will there be a tomorrow or right. next week? We seriously, I don't know you, but seriously, we didn't know. We were scared, fear, blah, blah. I mean— were you shooting during that? Yeah, this oh. was a COVID film. Oh, so you, you know, you, oh my God. So on top of the prosthetic, <laughs> you had to mask up and visor up? I and... couldn't. Everybody else did, but I couldn't. But oh, okay. some, I won't say it's fortunate, but I guess I was pre-disaster because I got it like that January, February. Before oh, you did? We, yeah. yeah, I did. That was before me. the vaccine? Yeah. Oh, Why, yeah. How sick did you get? I, I lost smell, taste. I had serious brain fog. And did I, it come back? Uh, yeah, I've got it several times since then. Actually, I'm holding up four fingers. Oh, really? Yeah, really. Like, uh, well, you got your smell back. Yeah, that came back. Oh, that good. was. I mean, sriracha sauce might as well have been fucking toothpaste <laughs> at one point. I was like, what is going on? Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I just told a doctor about. It. She's like, yep. There's so much we don't know about this. That's neurology for you, right? Right. And you feel all right now? Yeah. 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 That role was not written for an Asian person. Yeah. Uh, it was a play originally and right. all of the production. Did you see the play? No, I didn't. Hmm. Um, that's the sad thing about living in L.A. is that you miss a lot of theater Th- going that's true. on in New York. Um, but in all of the stage productions, the character had been played by a white actress. And even when I was up for the part, uh, the other names of yeah. the other actresses that my agent told me was in the running, they... They weren't Asian, so. Um, well, I thought you did a great job with it. Thank you. I liked the movie, and uh, it, it was painful. Yeah. You, it, it, and I talked to Brendan about it, and that was heavy, man. It mm-hmm. was a heavy conversation. He's a heavy character as a person. Well, things. he's extremely thoughtful and philosophical. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and, and right. You know, you, it, the, a little heavy-hearted, <laughs> too, about some things. Yeah, yeah, but it's not. Um, I I like that too. Though sure. sometimes I I struggle with the very you know um, light, cheerful. Oh yeah, yeah. No, of course. <laughs> 
But like we got into some stuff, you know, because uh -huh. I, I was brought up with a certain amount of food awareness because my mother had eating disorder. So uh, like I found it uh, affected me in an odd way. Like when I watched the movie and then when I talked to him about, you know, the nature of, of the condition he was in. Because when I watched the movie, I didn't get hung up on that. Yeah. You know, I really got very quickly into the sort of emotional content of, of the characters. So, and that was interesting to me. Like, I wasn't marveling at, you know, the condition. Yeah. But I was sort of engaged with with the emotional interaction. And your character, and, and the twist at the end was, I, it totally worked on me. You know, I, I know this movie is very sort of um, divisive. You know, either people love it or they hate it. But I thought the one thing that got me about the film was that your character's, you know, almost demonic enabling. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Demonic. I haven't heard that. But yeah. Enabling. Yeah. She's an enabler. Yeah. But there was there at points there was an anger to it. There was you were there was a defensiveness to it where you would stop other people from stepping in mm -hmm. to help this guy mm -hmm. because, you know, you knew him better than anybody else. And you knew in, in your heart that there was nothing going to change it. I love that you saw that because I think most people think that she's um, she was sweet or something, and I that that always struck me did as not, strange. Did not, <laughs> did not register that at all. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean that that is somebody not engaging with the movie properly. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to not, you know. No, um, okay, you know, I'm not putting you in a position <laughs> where you have to judge critics, but but the but like right from the get go, I'm like, what the fuck is up with this person? Mm -hmm. Because you don't find out your backstory or his really mm -hmm. until the third act, really, right? Yeah. But like I knew right away, I'm like, what? Why doesn't someone stop this woman from feeding him? You know, what is her problem? How? And then, and then the weird kind of emotional conflictedness of your relationship with him. I I don't know. I I found it to be uh, disturbing and deep and and nuanced in how you played it. I mean, how did you approach that character? I know it's a weird question, but I mean... Um, yeah, I, I guess the demonic enabling was not uh, foreign to yeah. me. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> How so? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I've been witness to those, uh -huh. sure. that type of relationship in, in my life. And, uh, in your family? In my family, mm. yeah. And yeah, that part did not... Uh, I didn't really have to struggle with But did you get it? Like right when you it. read it? I got it immediately. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um and and also that that wanting to box out other people and wanting to be the only person in his well, life. Well, that, well that's who like, had that sort of uh connection in, in that relationship. Um and control in and some weird way. Control and, and there's like something a little bit selfish in, in that. Totally. Totally. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, that, you know, codependency is a weird thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Brendan's full interview is episode 1404, and Hong Chow is episode 1414. Next, it's Austin Butler, nominated for Best Actor in Elvis. I got a call that Baz was making the film. Yeah. And I, I there was one of those moments where, you know, there's certain times where you just, you just know that it's it's a once in a lifetime experience. Sure, this is the role of a lifetime. Yeah, if if it goes poorly, I'll probably never work again. Yeah, 
but if it goes well, this this could be something very special. If what goes poorly, the audition? No, no, the if, movie. If making this, if sure, you know, if, if you play it. Elvis and you and, fuck it up, you, yeah, it, <laughs> that's tough, really bad. Yeah, you stakes know? are and, high, and there's so many ways in which it can go wrong. Of course, there's so many traps. because when you deal with known people, yeah, how are you gonna like? It's it's tricky, man. Yeah. Because people know the guy. Well, so the, the the actual audition, the way that it, that it worked was, um, I, so I, you know, I hear he's making the film. Yeah. I I start preparing for it, you know, because I, I I knew that I had some time because he still didn't know who was going to play Parker right. at that time. So, yeah. So I knew that he he I had some time yeah. as he was trying to figure out who was going to play Parker. And so I started just preparing as though I was going to play the part. And right. I watched every documentary and read every book and started listening to every one of Elvis's songs in chronological You read that Goldman book? Yeah, yeah, it's huh. great. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then, you know, listen to the archives of his interviews and everything. And, um, and it just sort of felt like a detective, you know, trying yeah. to find the truth of whoever Elvis was as a human. Yeah. And... Um, and in that process, I learned certain things like Elvis's mom passed away when he was 23. Right. That's the exact same age I was when my mom died. And so there was these certain things that suddenly made him a real person to me. Oh, that's interesting. You know, so that, it wasn't so much that the relationship with with your mother was similar to his, but the fact that you both lost your mothers yeah, gave the, you an emotional point of reference. Yeah. Where I, I, I knew the truth of what he had At the same age, yeah. At the exact same right. age. Right. And he was very close with his mom. I was I was extremely close to my mom, so there was there was things that he was strangely close to. His well, mother. he was one psychologist called them lethally enmeshed. Yes, you know they, yeah. they were oh, interesting. they were incredibly mm. and and because from a young age he was he was all he was oscillating between being the child and yeah. then being the caregiver. Right. So even at three years old, people would say that they would watch him run around like a lightning bolt to yeah. the house and then come up to his mother and pet her and say, Can I get you anything? Can I get you anything? Do you oh, want water? Yeah, yeah. So he would care for his mother, but then he would be the child and Wow. There's that back and forth sort yeah. of thing. Well um, uh yeah, bordering on creepy. Well, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> One could say. Yeah. So um, so you you're doing all this prep. Yeah. And and how does the audition go? Well then, then I, I sent Baz a tape of me singing Unchained Melody. Yeah, um, and that resonated with him, you know. Uh, and then, and then I I went into Denise, our, our casting director, and we read a couple scenes and sent him a tape of me doing the scenes. And you're doing the accent. You're doing. You're deep in. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm doing my best yeah, to yeah. you know mm -hmm. try to do everything. And, right. And then he, um, and then he said, you know, I want you to fly to. New York and and meet with me here and so I went and met him at his house in New York and we just talked for hours and we talked for about three hours about life and Elvis and all these different yeah. things and um and then and then he said you want to come in tomorrow and read some scenes from the script yeah and and maybe sing a song and so I came in the next day to his office in Brooklyn and and uh and we read and we just sat down with the script and just read yeah and then uh and then I sang don't be cruel or something like right. that and then he said, why don't you come in tomorrow and uh, we'll read some more of the script and yeah. you can maybe sing Suspicious Minds. Right. So then that night I went Different home. Different age. I, I start practicing Suspicious Minds all night. And yeah. I, I was also not a singer before this. So, so I'm, you know, I just was trying to do my best to sing yeah. as closely as possible. And so that process went on for five months. 
with the us, own of us just kind of you know and some we may go a week without seeing each other right. and he'd say you want to come in and yeah. maybe try this scene yeah and so we just kept chipping away because there was a lot of questions of you know at that time i was 27 i'm 31 now um, we, we, there was the question of, can I play older Elvis? You know, is that even possible? Will but the, the one thing he knew, all? you know, at the, from the get go was like, mm. this guy kind of looks like him. Well, I guess there was enough of a similarity, right? you know, because like, you, you know, you gotta be close. You gotta be close enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like, and, and I think it was, you know, then experience, you know, filling the gaps of your capacity mm. in his mind, like, you know, by challenging it with all these different songs, different ages. You yeah. Know. And different, different temperaments. You yeah. Know? He was reminding me the other day of, of, he wanted, um, in the rehearsal, he had me do this scene where I, where I get angry. Yeah. You know, at, at Parker around the time that, uh, that he's trying to take my money yeah. and, and everything so he gave me at that time he, he had the idea of me pulling a gun on him and, and so he gave me a hairbrush and we're doing this and and so i just came out with everything that i had and a lifetime's worth your lifetime's worth of, <laughs> of aggression yeah was able to come out and that and that was something about elvis that you that you learn when you read a lot about him is that when when he had a temper yeah his whole demeanor changed. You yeah, know? I mean, he he could go from being very sweet and then having quite a fire. Yeah, all temper. that all that energy that goes you into know, that charisma going yeah. into anger. You know, it's, yeah. So that was so we so we we just tried to find. Yeah. you know, he he tried to just push me in every way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Austin Butler is on episode fourteen thirteen. Now we get to my co-star and two Leslie, Andrea Riceboro, who was nominated for Best Actress. Our movie right now, like know, you know, I the know. fucking distributor dropped the ball on you know, you know, facilitating something that would bring a lot more attention to the movie. And it's just sort of like one idiot's gonna like that that happened and now this movie that's struggling with a hundred percent rotten tomato scores that everyone should see because mm-hmm. of the work you did, the work we all did, mm-hmm. is now, you know, it's been hobbled by the people that are responsible for putting it out there. I think <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, I know. I think the more transparent we are about it, the better. Yes. And the what, what people don't quite understand is that that there is not an equal. There's not equal footing for everyone, and that's not because of huge hundred million dollar yeah. um, publicity budgets. That's because there literally isn't equal footing. Yeah, and we're operating in a system where everything costs something, even yes. to just submit your film. Yeah. to an awards. Um, sure. Yeah. Platform. Yeah. And if people aren't aware of that, there are, as there always have been, a few a few players that have a lot of power. Uh-huh. And those always change. They revolve and change. Uh-huh. But I think one of the most s- sad things is, and, and, and also like is dangerous things, is this assumption that we know what an audience wants. Yeah. I think that's one of the most... Uh, yeah, but who, exactly. And who are those people that decide that? What are the numbers? What's the mathematics? Mostly it's just people that are afraid of losing their jobs. It's like constant conversation in our industry. You <sighs> want to see something new. So you bring something new and they say, we haven't yeah. seen it before. Yeah. Who's this going to be? Who? who, yeah. who where's we, the audience? Who's attached? Yeah. Um, and it's it's actually, a, I think, a huge judgment on not just cinema goers, but consumers, you know, at large. I hear so many times people saying there's nothing to watch. When they, you know, when there's so much, as as we know, so much stuff being made all the yeah. time. Well, but that's because only these certain things get through, 
And I think people get overwhelmed and exhausted by the choices. So you have to – someone has to guide them somewhere. They do, but it's 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 – the height of i mean it's 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 evil i mean there are kids starving you yeah, know yeah. the amount of things that are being made and i think a lot of the time unfortunately things end up being background noise you know yeah. and, th- and then there's maybe 10 20 yeah. that gets through that's like really fantastic quality and yeah. and and that's wonderful and one of the things that i absolutely love is that the some of the great filmmakers like Iñárritu and um, I mean there's so, so many like him now are being championed by those bigger platforms mm. and being allowed to do what they want to do still, yeah still do, uh, you know. honoring their vision Andrea's full interview is on episode 1400 Okay, nominated for Best Screenplay, this is Sarah Pauly, writer and director of Women Talking, which is also nominated for Best Picture When I initially watched the movie you know, a couple of things, you know, it was sort of um, the different points of view uh, of all the women in relation to the rapes within their community. You know, I mean, I, I, I guess we should set it up a little bit. It's a Mennonite. Are they Mennonite? Mm-hmm. It's a Mennonite community where many of the women were drugged with bovine tranquilizers mm-hmm. and raped by uh, some of the men in Mm-hmm. Right. And it went on for years in the middle of the night. And this is, yeah. is this based on a truth? It's based on a true story that happened in a Mennonite colony in Bolivia from 2005 to 2009, uh-huh. or 2010. And um, it's a, it's the, the film is based on a novel by Miriam Taves. And the novel is a response to those true life events. So it doesn't cover those events. Those events are not in the film. It's about this imagined response by the women of the community where they sit down and have this debate about whether or not they should stay and fight for a different kind of colony, whether or not they should stay and do nothing and forgive the men as they're being instructed to by the elders, or whether they should leave and create their own colony. So this is an imagined debate that takes place in this hayloft about how to respond. And what struck me about the presentation of it is, like, are you going to make a theater theatrical version of it because mm-hmm. it plays like a play just by nature mm-hmm. of the setting yeah i mean i think it would be great as a play as well great. yeah i mean the i i was determined to make the film as cinematic as yeah. possible but absolutely it could be a play as well because it's it's like it's it's kind of loaded up like a play yeah that is sort yeah. of like we're gonna reckon with this yeah yeah and the one man in you know who who was there as a secretary and mm-hmm. as a listener, it was that was a very delicate balance of of acting. You know, in the face of of rage or complacency or 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 um, subverted rage, mm-hmm. that that guy has to sort of represent that sex. Yeah, uh, he did a very good job. <laughs> but what I started thinking about today, in retrospect, and after reading the book, a couple of things that you know the the nature and you addressed it a little bit. Before of what I, I, I sort of started to think of as institutional gaslighting mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, the way out of our own fear that we gaslight ourselves mm-hmm. into thinking, you know, and I'm just throwing that word around because it, it, it seems to have a very specific meaning. But why can't we broaden that? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, institutional gaslighting is the nature of religious belief in a way, right? Yeah. I mean, I think in a, in a, in a society like – you know, the one in the film where the structures of power have yeah. become kind of this corrupted. I tend to sort of parse out the faith from the structures sure. because I think that 
you know, what the women in the film are doing isn't actually trying to abandon their faith or their religion. They're actually trying to figure out how to get closer to it with integrity, which means throwing off the structures that have sprung up around it and the sort of power grabs and hierarchy because hierarchy yeah. you know what I'm going to give sure. up on the word hierarchies, hierarchies yeah. of power that have sprung up around it um, but also their, their personal morality you know as women in that type of community becomes corrupted because of the the need for them not to take action yeah and so they have to kind of go well how do we how do we stay true to our faith the way we understand it? And how is that different from what we've been taught and what's been handed down to us? And so in order to forgive, which is what's being demanded of them with no accountability and no healing. By other women. yeah, By women in the, the, the conversation that's happening has no men in yeah. it. So any of that hierarchy that is male-based mm-hmm. – is being manifest in in women who have believe it. Believe it or are in relationships where they have no power and feel there is no option except to accept it, except to forgive. Right. And so I think what these women kind of are wrestling with is this notion of forgiveness and what it means to them and how they might come to that in a real way. And the first step that has to be taken is to get out of harm's way. And The second step that has to be taken is how do we imagine a colony where these things are not allowed to happen again? How do we imagine an equitable society, one in which we're making decisions collectively and have a voice so that forgiveness becomes this evolving – there's an evolution of the meaning of the word into something much richer and more complex and ambitious than simply forgiving – it's about how do we create the conditions in which one day we might be able to forgive and what has to happen for that to, to be possible. Sarah Pauly is on episode 1403. Another director we had on is Todd Field. He's nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay for Tar. Not knowing about that world and the way that you captured it through her and through you know the detail was, was pretty fascinating you know, to me. That classical music world. I, it is a fascinating world. I yeah. mean, I, 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 you know, I felt the same way. You know, dipping my toe and getting into it. How do you see it? You know, I see it differently every time. You mm-hmm. know, and I don't mean to be coy or cute or about it. I mean that for real. Like, you know, when when we started editing the film, yeah. Uh, part of the deal, you know, part of the deal was making the film was I. I was the only American. I had to work with everyone. Had to be in Europe, and and so those were all new people. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Monica Willie, my editor, was someone who I'd wanted to work with for about over 15 years. And we'd been talking about it for a long time. But we were supposed to edit with – she lives in Vienna. Yeah. Vienna lockdown, London lockdown. And so we wound up in the middle of Scotland, uh, in, the, I mean, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. On a 15th century nunnery. And, uh-huh. and neither one of us drive on the right side of the road. So we we, we, we just work seven-day weeks. And, and we would walk – and we're in the, I mean, the middle of nowhere, we walk four and a half miles every day and, yeah. and then we go to work. And, um, w- when we got to the point where we were actually screening a run of the film, every, every time we would do that, we would turn to each other and say, how did you feel about her today? Yeah. You know, and our feelings about her would change all the time, sometimes huh. based on the cut, sometimes based on the time of the day, sometimes based on whether we were tired, you know? So, um, I, I, you know, my impressions about about this character um, are fairly fluid, depending on um, the last time I've seen the film. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And and 
Yeah, I could see that. Like, I, I know that if I watch it again, it'd be different. Um, and what'd you tell Kate, you know, in the way that you like to work with actors? What'd you lay down for her? Well, again, I mean, sort of like how filmmakers talk to each other. We don't, we just talk about practical things you sure. know, that you have to get done. I mean, Kate and I had met 10 years before that on this project that I'd written with Joan Didion. And, um, that what happened to that? Um, no one was excited as Joan and and Kate and I were about it, and and it was it was a period thing, so it was just it, no one wanted to give us the money we would have needed to have made it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I knew in talking about that character and the material with her uh, that I was talking to like you know one of the great minds uh, yeah. th- that I'd ever come across, and um, somebody that really looks at a film in a holistic way, out, way outside their character. Uh-huh. So. Um, our initial conversations were like that. It was not sort of like, how do you play this character? It was more about the, the thing, the thing. What yeah. is this thing where we, we want to accomplish? And um, at least, you know, from day one. And, and of course, that changes uh, as, as, you're, as you're continuing that conversation. But, um, you know, the things that she had to master were, were self-evident. You know, so there's no point in me talking to her about any of that. I knew she conducting. was... Conducting. She would have, well, conducting, learning to play Bach on the piano, doing an American accent, speaking German, uh, stunt driving, all those things were, those are just practical things she would have to learn, you know? And so, um, so she did. I mean, we had a year before we started rehearsal in Berlin. Um, and so she made two other films in, in that period of time and she would finish a day of work and call me from Budapest or whatever. And we'd get on the phone and we'd just start talking about things or she would have a, or she would be doing zoom lessons with someone or she'd be doing piano Uh lessons. And so by the time she turned up, um, uh, in August, we had, you know, we had about three weeks together in Berlin. Um, but in terms of the character, in terms of the actual, um, all that groundwork had been laid, you know, and and by the time we got into it, it, it was, a um, you know the the way that uh, that I always like to work is, you know, I re- we rehearse, yeah. um, and at the beginning of the day we rehearse again alone, and then we bring the crew in and show them what we've done, and say, okay, the camera's going to go over there. It's on a twenty nine millimeter lens. It's three feet high, zero tilt, um, and, and the shot's going to go from this to that. You know, and um, and in that way, especially for a piece like this where you're following a single character. Um, it was important not to have any safety net for her. So it really is a very, it's a very theatrical kind of film in a way. Yeah. It's almost like watching a play in many respects. Yeah. There are places where it's not that, you know, but um, but it really is sort of like giving this, you know, bull in a china shop a container to to do whatever that bull is going to do. You know? Right, yeah. Oh my God. Wait, was, I just, was, at the beginning, what, what was the, her assistant's name? Francesca. Is she texting Krista? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear the rest of that conversation with Todd Field on episode 1401. Another Best Original Screenplay nominee is Ryan Johnson, who's nominated for Glass Onion. It seems like, you know, you took on the genre, you know, head on in Knives Out. Like, you know, this was a mansion. It yes. was a family. It, it felt like, you know, but you yeah. tweaked it. Yeah. And you, you, they were higher stakes. I think the the dialogues was uh, had a better clip than yeah. the old timey ones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, the, but the challenge was for you to sort of 
own that particular form. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I've I've done kind of movies in different genres before, and for me, it's it's kind of um, I don't know. It's sort of, for me, it's sort of about having a genre that I grew up loving. First yeah. of all, so I got an emotional connection to it, and, yeah. and all all I'm trying to do, really, I'm, I'm uh, all I'm trying to do is kind of connect back up in the most direct way to what I love about it. Yeah. and get that on the screen, and but that with a genre that has kind of layers of veneer over it over the years yeah. of like you've seen it a bunch. Yeah. Yeah, you got to kind of tweak, you got to shake it a little, you got to tweak it. I mean, a big part of it with these ones is just setting them in modern day America. You know, so many whodunits I'd seen over the years and loved are period pieces sure. in England. So just yeah. like, all right, it's forget timelessness. It's it's set in America right here, right now. And But you're able to deal with the old mansion yeah, and the other one. Yeah, so there was true. like yeah. the trappings. Yeah. Of, uh, well, with this one, though, I mean, it's interesting. There's, there's, you know, there is kind of like a whole subgenre of the vacation mystery. You know, you think about like Death on the Nile, Evil Under the Sun, sure. The Last of Sheila. Yeah, yeah. The, well, yeah. There's a lot yeah. of them now. I mean, there yeah. isn't yeah, that yeah. movie, The Chef movie. Oh yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. And White but, Lotus yeah. is is it's really true. And, Sand, and Sandler's a uh, uh, mystery thing is kind of like a yeah. It's a, it's a whole thing, the destination murder thing. So there, there's a tradition of it. There's, yeah, there's that. But well, that's interesting. Yeah. So so yeah. But this was really more of a like a compound situation this, yeah, was, this yeah. wasn't like people sort of in an awkward in an uncomfortable place no or a place that's beautiful that becomes horrible because someone's dead no not really it's but, kind of yeah but this yeah. one for you like in in approaching it as a writer yeah i mean the other one was family yeah uh the other one was about you know property being left about a will yeah so like this was the entire device and and the sort of genre buttons yeah were not there yeah it's this one is but at the same time there are other ones that i'm leaning on so yeah. like with this one i mean first of all it was about a group of a group of friends which yeah. is another trope of uh of the murder mystery thing which actually puts me ahead like a lot of christie's stuff it's just people who live in the same town or people are vaguely connected so even just having a group of friends who are trapped together on an island gives me kind of a density that like yeah it's yeah. really helpful right but then um yeah, leaning into. I mean, it's all like with Who Done. It's all about the power structure. It's all about a group of suspects, right. yeah, yeah, kind of a microcosm of society. Power, right, power right, structure. Right. Somebody at the top that needs to die. You right. know. <laughs> yeah. and so, uh, and this one, it was clicking in, kind of. Okay, it's a tech billionaire up at the top, so that kind of makes sense, like who this group of friends are, yeah. and then we can talk about this and that, and then it kind of is. So it all kind of folds. And we, what was it about the idea of? so many breakable things <laughs> i mean like you know right at the beginning of the movie you're sort of like well there's a lot of glass yeah it's no just, not just the place but all the sculptures <laughs> that you know that's set up for some reason yeah it's Chekhov's glass trinkets basically <laughs> it's like yeah yeah the notion that kind of um i don't know i mean like like the and i'll try not to like spoil it if anyone listening yeah, hasn't yeah, seen yeah. it but like you know i like the idea that um what happens at the end kind of very much follows what Miles Braun, what Edward Norton's character describes as disruption, which is, you you know, breaking, you start by sure. breaking stuff everywhere. Oh, okay. Wants, yeah, wants yeah, broken. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also cheesy art. Totally. Oh, yeah. You. That's the thing. You've been staring at those things the whole week, the whole movie on their, che- their yeah. wobbly little pedestals saying, yeah. I, I want, th-. and by the way, the actors, by the time we got to the end of shooting in that set, we've yeah. been on that set for like two months. They were like d- tiptoeing around these fucking things. They were dying to start smashing those. So, so it was cathartic. All oh, around. they did it? Everyone was able oh, to break Oh, my God. It. Everyone was like calling. Oh, I'm going to break that one. Oh, that's yeah, so was, funny. It was good, Ryan Johnson is on episode 1393. 
Finally, we'll go back all the way to the beginning of last year for two nominees from The Fablemans. I spoke with Tony Kushner, who's nominated for Best Original Screenplay, and Judd Hirsch is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. How did the, the thing with Spielberg start with you guys? Uh, I, when Angels in America, Mike Nichols' version came out on HBO, uh-huh. and it, the minute you have anything happen on you know, a movie or a TV show or something come out, you get calls from producers who say, let's have breakfast. Sure. And I got a call from Kathy Kennedy uh, saying, let's have breakfast. I'm going to be in New York and I'd like to meet you. And uh, you just meet and you have breakfast and you, they say, what are you doing? And you say, what are, what are you doing? And uh, I said to Kathy, what are you guys working on? And she said, we're working on two for you and Stephen. And she said, we're working on two films. One is uh, about the murder of the uh, Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics in 1972. And the other is adapting Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, forthcoming book, Team of Rivals, about Abraham Lincoln. And I said, those are great projects. Yeah. And then uh, right as we were about to leave, I said, you know, uh, I just published, I, I edited with a friend, Elisa Solomon, uh, an anthology of essays about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict called Wrestling with Zion. And I said, I'm really proud of the book. And if you guys are going to make a thing about the Munich Olympics massacre, uh, maybe you'd find stuff of value in it. So if you'd like, I'd be happy to send it to you. And I did. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. Yeah. And then about two weeks later, I got a phone call. It was Spielberg. And he said, I just read the essays and I really like them. And I'd like to talk to you about this script. And we got together. He, he sent me the script. I read it. We talked about it. And then he said, would you like to try and write your own version of it? And I said, yes. And now we just this summer finished our fourth movie together. So it'll be coming out in uh, Thanksgiving. Which that's, movie is that? It's about his childhood. We wrote it on Zoom, just like what we're doing now. No kidding. Uh, uh, during lockdown, we wrote it. It's the fastest thing I've ever wrote. We co-wrote the script together. It's about Stephen's uh, uh, childhood and his sort of the beginnings of his- uh, Oh, really? Of him running around with his Super 8 camera? Yeah, Super 8 camera and then 16 millimeter and- and it's also about his parents and his parents' marriage falling apart. And it's oh, uh, interesting. Uh, Michelle it. Williams and Paul Dano are in it, and and Seth Rogen. And it's uh, I'm very excited about it. Wow, that's amazing! So uh, he finally does an autobiographical picture, and he he needs you to to help him out. I, I was like his his shrink. <laughs> You've done the voiceover work. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. I mean, I was I was living on it at one time. Really? Yeah. <laughs> When? 1973. Well, actually, from 68 to about 73, someone found me Yeah. in New York. I, I believe, I mean, I still, to me, it's still a mystery. Yeah. I was kicking around off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, actually, yeah. and I got a call from somebody to go to the Universal Casting Office in yeah. New York. They had one. Yeah. Dar- Universal Studios? Universal Studios yeah. had a casting a service on Park Avenue in New York. Yeah. The lady's name, I believe, was um, <clears throat> Dorothy Kilgallen, or her sister. Huh. That was, sounds familiar. Yeah, because she was a sort of a scandal writer. And, oh, okay, right, okay. The Kilgallens. And so I came into this office, and she hands me this big tome. Yeah. And she said, would you go in the other room and read that? Yeah. And tell us if you think you are. You can... You're the uh, character. Yeah. So what they were looking for is some a fast-talking Jewish lawyer. Yeah. 
get this one. Yeah. <laughs> New York. Yeah, yeah. Fast-talking okay. Jew, New York <laughs> Jewish lawyer. Can you do it, Judd? Yeah, can, can you, you do, do it? Well, she didn't know who I was. Right. I, I, no, I, I know, I know. I have no idea how I got there. Yeah, believe yeah. me. Believe me, it just was a phone call. <laughs> yeah. So I go in the other room. I'm reading. It's called The Law. Yeah. It's like, it was for a two-and-a-half-hour television movie. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that it was going to be like, who else was up for the part? I had no idea. I'm in New yeah. York. They're casting in L.A. Yeah. Some of the biggest names you ever heard wanted the part, but I yeah. didn't know that until after it was done. Mm. Yeah. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, I'll read this. Oh, it's mm, pretty good. You know, well, I can do that. Mm, yeah. mm, sounds like me. Mm, okay. So I come in. I didn't even finish reading. It was yeah. too long. Yeah. I said, yeah, I think so. She said, good. Now, I'd like to introduce some of the people in the, in the uh, office. She takes me for a little walk around the office and said, she gets to a little office, tiny office, with a desk and a man behind yeah. it. The man is Steven Spielberg. Really? Spielberg was 22. He was doing Jaws. Yeah. He had Jaws on his desk. <laughs> yeah. um, look, and she says, and this is Mrs. Spielberg. He's going to be very big. And then we walked on. He went like this. <laughs> he, he, had waved. The, he had the paperback, the book? He No, the script. Oh, the script, okay. He was already okay. directing. Okay. He was okay. going to direct Jaws right. yeah, at yeah. that moment. Right. 1973, four. 50 years later, which just happened this past year, yeah. Spielberg calls me. Right. And says what I do a part in a, new, in a movie he's doing about his own family. Right. I heard about this from, uh, who just told me about it? Uh, Tony act. Kushner. Tony Kushner. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tony wrote it. So you, uh, what part are you playing in the movie? It's the most unusual, completely different part from anything in the movie. In yeah. other words, he appears, does something, leaves, never hear from him again. Your character. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's, like a, he's like a dream out of somebody's head. The, the, the old Jewish oracle? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said it was so cute because I don't I I I never met him. I never met Stephen. Really? He, never met him. All that one day that I saw him across the table, I never met him after that. Did you tell him that? Yeah, I said I the, my first words for him when I sat down to talk to him, I said I knew you 50 years ago, you know. I said, I saw you. You were a little guy. You were this little guy across the desk. He said, when? I said, 73, 74. He said, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after we finished this movie, yeah. and I do my part, he writes me a little note. He said, and I hope it won't be 50 more years so we can meet again. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Tony Kushner is episode 1301, and Judd Hirsch is episode 1303. If you want more Oscar talk, get the Oscar bonus episode we released on the Full Marin this week. And you can also use your Full Marin subscription to go through the ad-free archives and listen to the Oscar stuff we've done every year. To subscribe, click on the link in the episode description or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF+. Plus. All right. Enjoy the movies. How's that for a sign-off? Let's go to the movies. Isn't that somebody's sign-off? Who did that? All right. Okay. Okay.